Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 21st of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Now, I've been out of work for a week and it is nice to be back, but let's recap because since then, the Minister for Health organised a meeting with local politicians to discuss the future of our ladies' hospital in Navan with medical experts. Clinical directors, national clinical directors, clinical director for Navan. And what they said to us is that people in Meath, the people who go into that hospital, there's a small number per day, maybe about five, that because it's a small emergency department with a small hospital, that they are at risk in a very significant way. And I think we all accept uh, that those clinicians are giving uh, us that advice only considering patient safety and that we all must uh, have that uh, first and foremost in our minds. Stephen Donnelly outlining some of the concerns about Navin. But there are similar concerns being raised about making sure that if those patients were to be transferred, not go into Navin, but to go into a much bigger emergency department in Drogheda, that Drogheda has... Uh, the resources in place for that. And so it seems uh, the Minister is ready to accept the argument for closing the emergency department in Our Ladies on one hand, but on the other hand, he isn't taking the argument against Navin in isolation. This is not a debate simply about one hospital, which is Navin. We need to consider both hospitals and make sure that everything is in place. But whatever is done with this, rest assured that it will begin and end, as I'm sure you would agree with, uh, with patient safety in mind. And Sinn Féin will put a, a motion to the doll today, as you probably know, which will, uh, part uh, from other issues, ask for the Minister to immediately clarify his position on the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, which does seem a bit odd, given the Minister has accepted the advice of uh, the clinicians and Stephen Donnelly wants to close the emergency department for reasons of patient safety, but not yet, because he's worried about patient safety if those patients go to the Lourdes Hospital. By the way, you were listening to the Minister speaking in the Dáil last week, and it has to be said it's way past time that the Minister spoke to LMFM and explained his position to you and if that concern he has about the Lourdes Hospital is going to be addressed, and if that does mean that the Emergency Department is going to close in Navan from his perspective, or from the perspective of whoever is going to be making these decisions. One important player in all of that is uh, Dr. 
Colin Henry, who's uh, the clinical director of uh, the HSC. And uh, Dr. Henry will be speaking with us in uh, the coming days, as indeed will Jerry McEntee, who's uh, the senior clinician in Navin, uh, who is expected to speak to us on the programme tomorrow, I think. But let's speak to Patrick Tobin, who's the leader and founder of Vain2 and uh, the chair of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign now. Uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Did you go to the Sinn Féin meeting last night? No, I wasn't at the Sinn Féin meeting last night. Why is that? Well, because uh, we have a hospital campaign um, we're, we're organising. OK, so, so this is already being politicised. Who's to blame? Is it Sinn Féin who has politicised it or are you politicising it? Well, first of all, the Save Navin Hospital campaign is a cross-party, cross-community campaign and it has done a great job over the last 11 years in harnessing all the energy of all the political parties together for the one objective. Yeah, but you didn't go to the Sinn Féin meeting last night. Well, uh, 200, was, 200, was, people, was, 200 people in Navin came to a, a meeting to talk uh, about saving Navin Hospital and you didn't go. I mean, there were doctors there who wants the emergency department to close. There were lots of people who had nothing to do with Sinn Féin. Honest, it just was, seems very asked, odd that you didn't go to it. I was asked on to Virgin Media last night to, to, to the Tonight Show to discuss amongst other things, the, um, the health service in this country and the hospitals. So that was my uh, objective, to make sure that we have the message going out across the airwaves of the necessity to keep the hospital functioning. Okay. Um, so and I, I, and, I, and I, I did watch you on that, and fair enough yeah. if that's the case. Uh, yeah. But it, it was a big meeting, and it showed a, a determination on behalf of some people in, in the town uh, to stop this move. But it is going to happen by July, isn't it? There's a big meeting, um, and the reason being is because there's a palpable anger in Meath in terms of the HSE plans to close the A&E. People can't understand the fact that we have nearly 12-hour waiting times in Drogheda, uh, and in Conley for admissions uh, because of the overcrowding that's going on there. That staff in Conley were out on a picket just before Christmas in terms of the overcrowding uh, there and that the Matter Hospital and Mullingar Hospital have asked patients just in the last week not to arrive at their A&Es due to the overcrowding. And uh, even in Navin, last year, last winter, we had the orthopaedic uh, and elective surgery in Navin cancelled because of the overcrowding in Navin A&E itself. Mm. Staff were, were reorientated towards the overcrowding because of the pressure on the hospital service. And, and it is just absolutely incomprehensible okay. that at a time a with of people, so little, little capacity... I imagine you're preaching to the converted uh, and there's not much point in you and I... But no, but this, no, but no, 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 but, but, but when it comes to making the decision, yes. whose decision is it? It's, it's the government. It's the minister's decision. This is a political decision. And um, the, what the government is looking to replace the A&E with is, is absolutely incredible as mm. well. And this is the key point, Michael. And I do want to focus on this. Because the government's replacement for the A&E now, and they propose, is an, a, a GP referral MAU. That means that G, to get into the yeah. MAU, mm. you have to go to a GP and be referred. I know. Now, and I, I'm sure everybody's aware of that at this stage. But you, I'm not sure if they are, because well, the, 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 the practical element of this is that you can't get a, a GP for love nor money. It could I, I know, but if people aren't aware of it at this stage, and if they do have an interest in the hospital, they'd probably be living under a rock if they don't well, know I, what I've that spoken, proposal I've is. Spoken, I've spoken to GPs and doctors who, you know, hadn't considered the okay. fact that, you know, most of those 25,000 people who use Navin A&E are going to end up in Drada if the A&E is closed because they're not going to use the MAU because it's going to take 
intending... Well, I, I take it most of them are already because this is something that is being done by design and it's not something that is going to happen in July. It's because it's something that has been happening over a long period of time. Uh, we saw the minutes of uh, the HSE Executive Board meeting in March which spoke about ambulances bypassing the hospital. And now that this decision is being proposed, they say, oh, well, the ambulances bypass the hospital. Of course they do because you decided to do that in March. But Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Like We've said this, that the government's strategy but is death by is, it, is it the government's decision? I mean, the health authority surely has the authority to make these decisions. See, and, th- and this is the key issue, right? So the reason why the health authority, the HSC, are, are doing this is because there's a document called the Small Hospital Framework Document. In that document, uh, it states that Navin's uh, hospital should be reduced from a level three hospital to a level two hospital. So that decision to put it in there was James Riley's decision, Fine Gael's decision. It was made at a time when the population of the county wasn't near what it is now. Mm. And so that had the political authority to do that, and they handed it to the HSE. And now the HSE are actually paid to implement that. So every effort that the HSE has made mm. to close the A&E it goes back to a government decision to include... OK, that, but that I still way. don't understand whose decision it is, whose decision it well, is ultimately, because this goes, but this goes back to 2008, as you know, and the Teamworks report, which looked at the whole area, and then it goes to 2009, and the Lennis report, which looked at the location for a new regional hospital, and it made all of the arguments in favour of Navin. So, yes, it has to be a political decision, because if Navin was the place for a regional hospital in 2009... Surely it's a place for a hospital that can treat emergency patients now, unless you decide otherwise and decide to reconfigure it against the recommendations in that report, which, um, by the way, runs to, just let me check how many, 84 pages. It costs millions of euro. And most of the reasons it gives has to do with the population and the population catchment area. And if you decide that Navin doesn't have enough people or something else, you're, you're, you're making it up and you're making a political decision otherwise, which is that you're going to get those people to move to where the services are rather than bringing the services to where the people are because it made sense to do it in Navin then. It doesn't now. So it is a political decision. But is that decision being made by the politicians or will it be made by the politicians or will it be made by the HSE? And if the politicians decide not to close the emergency department, for example, does that mean that they'll usurp the HSE and that you'll see executive directors leaving the service? Well, first of all, we live in a democracy. The elected representatives of this country are ultimately responsible for what happens in the country. The book stops with them. We need them to take control of the situation and fix the situation so that it actually works for the people. And one of the issues that I have... But is there a line between the two? I understand your point, but I'm still not understanding who has the authority to make this decision. Well, it's it's the government that has authority. And it's really interesting that you say this, because when we were invited into that meeting with the HSC last Monday, we were told... Uh, by the government that you know, there's no decisions made, that this is going to be a discussion that was had. Yeah. Before the elected representatives of Meads left that room, the HSC had issued a press statement saying that the A&E will be closed on the 30th of June. Yeah. 
So, but it was a master stroke in spin because the media were supposed to be at it. The media weren't at it. Exactly. The, me- the media got two hours notice to go to a press briefing that the media weren't allowed to record. So it was pointless even uh, attending. Statements were issued afterwards uh, and there was no real scrutiny of what was being said or who was making the decision. Well, I, I can tell, I can give you some feedback in what happened that me- in that meeting. First of all, I asked the HSC why was surgery services uh, stopped in the hospital t- uh, over 10 years ago. They didn't know. I raised the issue that there's 105,000 adverse incidents happening in the health service currently. Uh, that's up 30%, up from 75,000 um, five years ago. Each one of those adverse incidents is, is suffering by a patient, and it's happening in the main because of overcrowding. Uh, I, ra- I raised the point that the RCSI group, which Drogheda is in, is actually having a far higher increase in the number of adverse mm. incidents. And the the CEO of the of the RCSI group um, said he didn't know, understand that those figures, hadn't heard those figures. And I'm thinking this is a, a man that's been paid um, big money. Did he think that he should have been speaking, uh, given the big money he's on, did he think that he should have been speaking to the people of Navin uh, through the media or elsewhere? Uh, because the media were supposed to be at that meeting, then the media were asked to a briefing but weren't allowed to record it. Uh, the, the, the briefing took place in Dublin. I, I don't think anything has happened in Navin, I don't think anybody's moved out of Dublin to come and talk to the people of Mead. I worry that the HSC are people in their ivory towers. They, 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 they are very knowledgeable. They do good work in terms of the, the, the design of particular technical services for people. They, they remind me, to be honest, of an IT whiz kid who can design the best technical uh, computer system known to man, but that people can't use. And that's what we have here. We have a system that's built by the HSE that people are unable to use in their homes. And until the day that we designed the health service around people. Actually, I, I wrote it down at that meeting. Someone actually said in that meeting, it's shocking. People keep turning up at A&E's. And I'm kind of going, well, that's what normally happens in an A&E. People turn up at A&E's because people get sick and people get ill. Yeah. And there's emergencies. Well, we, we, we've lived through all of this and we remember in Dundalk when it was first implemented when they downgraded the emergency department in Dundalk uh, that a, a fellow was working up in the hospital and he fell off the roof of the hospital and they had the, 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 the medics came out of the hospital but they weren't allowed to treat him and they had to call an ambulance which came from Drogheda to the hospital in Dundalk to take the patient to Drogheda. And, and, and this, is, this is the thing. This is what happens when you have... That, that civil service bureaucratic mentality that doesn't put the patient at the heart of the system. And, you know, I spoke to a, a man on, on Monday who rang his GP looking for an appointment. The GP said, I will ring you back. At, in between that, because he was very sick, he went to, to the A&E. Hmm. He got treatment in the A&E and went home. He was lying in his bed because he was so sick, and he got a phone yeah. call from the GP saying, we can take you in two or three days. Now, that is going to be the experience. But that is the Irish Health Service, isn't it? I, I mean, uh, we're going to talk to Jerry McEntee on the programme tomorrow because he's uh, the top man in Navin. He's also the top man in the matter, which has one of the worst emergency departments in the country. It has such a, a bad emergency department that there were so many people waiting in the emergency department at one stage uh, back in November of last year that somebody was denied a kidney transplant. The kidney went to waste. Uh, and then if you go forward to May of this year, uh, the INMO were describing that emergency department as outrageous with more than 100 people waiting to be seen and somebody waiting over 68 hours for a bed. The Irish Association of Emergency Medicine has stated that overcrowding in this country is, is resulting 
in the deaths of 350 people a year. Mm. This is a very, very serious... And the government is not talking about... The, the government is not dealing and is not for real about the overcrowding situation. Yes, they say this is terrible and they scratch their heads and they say things are going to get better. But this is not something that's appeared overnight. This is getting worse and worse and worse. And here we have in, in Limerick, for example, the University Hospital Limerick is like mm. a war zone at the moment. The reason it's a, like a war zone is because they closed Nina and Ennis. Yep. We, in this region, we are simply 10 years behind. But that's the standard we're setting, you see. Yeah. And when you're looking at it that way, it won't matter if Drogheda has a few... It's actually, by the way, Drogheda is one of the best emergency departments in the country, uh, even though there's very long waiting time. So maybe the idea is when you compare it to Limerick, uh, it wouldn't be so bad if you sent a, a, another few people there every day or 25,000 people, as the case may be. You're planning a hospital campaign rally on the 9th of July. I'm sure we'll hear an awful lot more before the 9th of July. Just talk to me about the Sinn Féin motion tonight, though, yeah, because so there's, there's, you're, you're proposing an amendment to that. I, I asked Sinn Féin a couple of weeks ago, would they put forward a, a, an amendment or, or, or a PMB in the door? And thankfully they did, and I appreciate that. However, when we read the amendment, we felt that this was a, a weak uh, a PMB. We felt that it didn't go; it wasn't strong enough. It doesn't say anywhere, and um, that the the closure of the A and E should be stopped. It doesn't say anywhere, and um, that uh, we should be uh, left at a level three uh, hospital. And it doesn't say anywhere that we need to return surgical uh, surgery services, acute surgical well, it, services. Well, it proposes protecting and enhancing uh, emergency and critical and, services and, and in the hospital. And, and so, I so in effect, that does say but, stop closing the emergency department. But in effect, if you're talking to Jerry McEntee in the HSE, they'll tell you that they're closing now and they need to enhance the emergency services. I know, but they'll also tell you that they're closing the emergency department. This says to uh, protect and enhance emergency and critical services, uh, which would relate to the ICU yeah. beds and the emergency well, departments. So. What I'm saying mm-hmm. to you is that we feel that this could still be used as cover by the HSC to, to proceed in, in the plan. And that's why we're putting in an, an amendment in black and white, which actually states, first and foremost, uh, that the, uh, the HSC would not close and uh, uh, the ED in Navan, uh, first and foremost. Secondly, it states that the objective in the small hospital framework document to reduce Navan from a level three to a level two will be deleted, gone, and we'll never have to deal with this craziness again. And the third issue is, because we want this to be a safer place too, we, we don't want to leave the status quo uh, hanging in, in Navan indefinitely. We want the, re- the return of acute surgery services in Navan, that if someone gets very seriously ill, rather than having to be transferred to another hospital, they can be dealt with on site. And we've actually spoken to senior medics uh, in the region in relation to this. All of that can be provided for by less than 10 million euros a year, which is a drop in the ocean if you look at the total budget uh, of the HSE. And given that the population of Navan is approaching a quarter of our meads, it's mm. approaching a quarter of a million people. This is well, what that was the argument in 2008. If you go back to 2008 and the Lennis report and you made a political decision, you could decide to build a regional hospital. And if you look at the report that cost millions back in 2008, yeah. the only conclusion could be that that hospital would be located in Navan. Yes, indeed. And, and actually, one of the reasons it wasn't located in Navan is because we had a senior minister in County, uh, County Loud at the Cabinet table <laughs> Uh, who felt that if there was a, that, that hospital was built in Navan, that it would lead to the downgrading of Drogheda. And as a result, that uh, was... Uh, I don't think that's back. the case. I think it was because, as that minister said, there wasn't a red cent in the exchequer. Uh, that's the uh, I am talking about, too. But just, <laughs> right. just, just before we go, just to let people know that, you know, that the, the hospital campaign is mobilising currently uh, for a rally 
on July 9th uh, and we're asking all community groups to step up to the plate at this stage. Uh, we've collected 12,000 signatures uh, over the last 10 days. We're, we're continuing with that in the interim mm. uh, but we will have a public meeting to help prepare well, for the very rally. well advanced by that stage. I mean, it's the close at the end of July, isn't it? Well, it, it, we, are, we are fighting this tooth and okay. nail and we're mm. going to stop it. Uh, I am not giving up on this. We, this is a life and death issue for thousands of people in this okay. country. Okay. Well, I, I take it the 9th of July is the last chance. If, uh, I, I believe are, it's probably the last yeah. chance for this county uh, to show the government that we will not accept this. And I will tell you yeah. that the governments do take into consideration when tens of thousands of people stand up for themselves and Mead have a strong record We'll say, we'll say because we saw it in Dundalk it made no difference and the same could be yes, said uh, about the other uh, seven we hospitals We are the last day in e standing out of yep. the nine Hikwa hospitals that okay. were, were targeted in the first place Patter, I have to leave there way over time Thank you indeed for your time and for joining us on the programme uh, this morning Patter Tobin leader and founder of AIM2 uh, Mead West TD he's uh, the chair of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. John and Dundalk has a, a very interesting perspective on all of this and probably because he's from Dundalk and he says, why is Navin any different to any other hospital in the country which has been downgraded? We did our best to try to stop uh, downgrading happening in the Loud County but we weren't successful. This is part of uh, the HSE's overall plan to have centres of excellence. Don't know how Our Lady of Lourdes and Drogheda is going to cope with uh, the extra numbers. Jim and Navin, he says, what worries me is uh, that the HSE is saying that uh, Navin is not a safe place at the moment. A disgraceful situation. If it is not safe, they should be investing in it to make sure that it is safe. What about patients currently using the hospital, he says. Thanks for that, Jim. Uh, Paddy and Cullen says, I'd like to know where is HICWA in all of this? Uh, They're meant to be policing the health system. Uh, I'd like to know how many ministers have to use our hospitals. They seem to be on a, a different level of reality than ordinary people. We can't afford to go to emergency departments and if we really need to go, how do we get to them? I, I don't understand. Uh, he says, I don't normally text in, but I'm a, a normal family man trying my best like many others and it's getting harder and harder to understand what this government is at. Thank you indeed, Paddy and Cullen, for that. Uh, let's hear some more thoughts about Navin Hospital. And these are some of uh, the people who attended the Sinn Féin meeting in Navin last night. For only for Navin Hospital, I wouldn't be here. You know? Like I've got serious issues and having to travel to Drada or to, to, to Blanchardstown is not going to be the easiest thing to do, you know, especially if I have another, another what was it, episode. Like I had two heart attacks like in Navin Hospital, so I wouldn't be here without them. And, you know, the, they're obviously the HSE making the argument that they'll provide specialist care at these centres of excellence. In but they won't. They're just, uh, all they do is add more trolleys. There's no excellence in the place, you know. They're cutting corners, that's what they're doing. You know, they reckon everybody will go to the same place, but they won't. Can't. In 2006, I was uh, in the A&E in Navin and I was saved by Mr McGrath. I presented with severe stomach pain. I have Crohn's disease and my bowel had attached to my appendix. And if I hadn't presented to the A&E, if that Navin hospital wasn't there, another 15 to 20 minutes, I, my bowel would have perforated and I would have died. So Navin Hospital, the A&E saved my life. So that's why I'm here in support of Navin Hospital tonight. And, and when the HSE says, you know, that they obviously want to downgrade Navin and then put... 
additional resources in elsewhere and divert people to the likes of Drogheda or Mullingar. You're not in agreement with that? No, I'm not. I think it's terrible and I think lives will be lost if an avenue is closed. I really do because time is of essence with some issues, health issues like stroke, heart attacks, etc., maybe trauma from a car accident and bringing people to those other hospitals. Also, the capacity is not there in those hospitals to take these traumas on. So I think it's detrimental that we keep this hospital A&E open in Mead for the people of Mead and the surrounding areas. They're talking about transferring all this to Toronto and Toronto clearly turned around and said that, that they haven't got it there, you know. It's just we need, we need, this, we need the A&E in it. In it. In, uh, made at the minute because if they shut this down where, where are we going to go then you wouldn't agree with the argument that they'll create you know these kind of centres of excellence is what they say in Drogheda or Blanchardstown or yeah but how long are they going on about this now this centre of excellence when is it going to be all sorted out you know it's alright saying the centre of excellence and all this but when is it going to happen you know the health service in this country is a joke now at the minute and, and people can't afford to lose the A&E nothing you know, I lost my father in Navin Hospital and saved my mother's life. You know, and when I got her hip done, she got everything done. You know, so if that happens to her now, you know, where's she going to go? Up the, up the draw, the down the carry, up the Donegal? You know, th- this is what's happening now at the minute. All right, that's uh, some of uh, the people who were attending the Sinn Féin meeting in Navan yesterday evening uh, about uh, the hospital. They were speaking to Marco Driscoll for us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Taoiseach was asked over the weekend what's wrong with uh, the British proposals on the Northern Ireland Protocol. The UK is suggesting red and green lanes to remove costs and paperwork on goods moving within the UK, but preserving full checks on goods entering the EU via Northern Ireland. What is wrong with that idea? Well, first of all, uh, the, the unilateral decision of the British government to bring in legislation to undermine or to give the power to undermine almost all aspects of the protocol uh, is not acceptable. Uh, It represents unilateralism of the worst kind in terms of honouring and adhering to international agreements that governments uh, adhere to and sign up to and ratify in their parliaments. Uh, We we accept fully their legitimate issues around the operation of the protocol and we believe with serious sustained negotiations between the European Union and the United Kingdom government, those issues could be Uh, resolved. But what I would say is that the legislation that is published does much more than you are suggesting because uh, it effectively uh, would be severely damaging to the Northern Ireland economy, particularly in the context of the dual regulatory standards approach now being put forward by the British government, uh, which is deeply concerning to industry and to businesses in Northern Ireland, and in effect represents a form of economic vandalism on Northern Ireland, because the- if you look any objective data, is now showing that Northern Ireland economy is doing very well. Uh, manufacturing is doing very well. The dairy industry, the meat industry, the food industry generally in agriculture is doing very well. There are certain areas uh, where we can improve the protocol, uh, and we should continue to do that. Right. Michal Martin was speaking uh, to Sophie Rayworth on the BBC's Sunday morning programme. Let's speak uh, to former DUP MLA Jim Wells, a political commentator these days. Good morning to you, Jim. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Do you accept what uh, the Taoiseach was saying there, that this would be a terrible betrayal of business in Northern Ireland, nothing short of economic vandalism? Well, Michael, I hope you can hear me okay. Perfectly, uh, yes. Yes. Um, what I'd say, Michael, is uh, thanks, but no thanks to the, the Taoiseach 
or to Michael Martin, because the reality is that, uh, frankly, he shouldn't have any concern about our economy. That's entirely a matter for the people of Northern Ireland and the people of the United Kingdom. We will make the decision as to what's best for Northern Ireland's economy, not uh, the head of a, a different state. Uh, secondly, he's saying that it's unilateralism, but what he isn't saying is that we don't have the right to do it. Now, all of this argument is about 6% of our trade. 6% of the trade that comes into Northern Ireland uh, moves on into the EU, mostly to the Irish Republic. It's just a tiny, tiny fraction which is undermining our constitutional position. I think the UK legislation, and as far as it goes, is a step in the right direction. Well, I have to say, I'm a wee bit concerned that some of it's enabling legislation, which means that it, it has a, a time frame which could be very, very far distant. We would like to see it coming into effect as soon as the bill gets the, the royal assent. All right, well... The Taoiseach may be uh, the head of a, a different state to the one that you live in, but uh, he's uh, the Prime Minister uh, in this country, which is on the same island uh, that you live in. And of course, there's lots of cross-border ties. And undoubtedly, he, he was talking about the concerns that were being brought to him uh, by business leaders about this blackguardism on behalf of the British government. Yes, I'm sure he's a right to make his views known to the sovereign government of the United Kingdom, but what he's not enabled <laughs> to do is to say what he thinks is best for the economy of Northern but Ireland. But what about the business Anymore? people of Northern Ireland? Well, the business people are very divided because some are finding this extremely difficult. Those who are importing plants, trees, uh, those who are those are taking livestock out to be sold in the rest of the UK, it's a mixed bag, but frankly... Regardless of that, this, as it stands, is a fundamental threat to the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. It's insidious, it's costing us £850 million a year in extra costs, and therefore we have to come up with a a model which will repair the damage. But what about the £450 million that can't be spent on putting money into people's pockets because the institutions aren't up and running? Start up and running because of the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is in the long term. Uh, the protocol is a disaster to the economy of Northern Ireland and the constitutional position. Now, well, people struggle to make ends meet. Yes, but you know, they'll struggle even more if we don't ever resolve the protocol. The protocol is an expensive instrument that's costing us a needless amount of money for six percent of the trade. And I think the ultimate solution is just to gradually phase out that trade and to bring goods from the United Kingdom directly to Dublin. It's just convenience at the moment they're brought through Northern Ireland because Well you heard you heard the Taoiseach and I'm sure you've heard others, Marisafkich or whoever uh, has been speaking on this side of the debate, if I can put it that way, saying that there's lots of things in the protocol uh, that people are legitimately concerned about, but they can be ironed out through negotiations. Well, we've been trying now for 15 months with the EU to, to negotiate changes and they've been absolutely resolute that they're not going to budge. So therefore, it's only in desperation that the UK government decided to legislate. The EU do not want this to, to change because obviously they want to send a signal out to other potential defectors from the EU that if you do so, it will be with considerable amount of pain mm. to people like uh, the Hungarians. So therefore, it has to be seen to be very painful and very vindictive. So therefore, I think uh, you know we have to take the bull by the horns because the negotiations are getting absolutely nowhere. Right. Does it not embarrass you to be living in a rogue state? I would hardly call us a rogue state. Remember, there isn't. Well, I think a lot of people would, given the unilateral actions of uh, the British government uh, and this economic vandalism uh, that uh, they'll be guilty of because they're breaking international law. Well, first of all, 
the, the crucial issue, there's not one elected representative of the unionist community who supports the protocol. There's absolute unanimity on this issue. Therefore, the, the, the workings of the Good Friday Agreement are uh, at the peril as a result of it, and that's the bigger picture. So therefore, we have to protect an international treaty that was signed in 1998. And at the end of the day, we will ensure that goods that do move from Northern Ireland into the Irish Republic and the EU are compliant with EU rules, and that mm. should be their ultimate aim, that in terms of plant, animal health, environmental quality, that those goods are not reducing uh, or endangering uh, the overall standards of the European Union. And the reality is, Michael, mm. they all do already, because those goods that are coming into Northern Ireland are also being sold in France and Germany, etc. So therefore, already are the standard required for the EU. Nobody, Nobody's making goods in the UK which are substandard to be shipped into Northern Ireland. There's a common standard throughout the EU now, even for a country like ourselves who's no longer in it. Right. Uh, I, I take it, uh, given your position, uh, you would be hoping that Boris Johnson will stay in power for some time to come because a lot of this uh, apparently is so that he can save his political skin uh, and... Uh, I take it you'd be concerned that if Liz Truss takes over that she might see sense and respect international law and sell you out, which wouldn't be the first time you'd have been sold out by the Conservatives. Well, I think we do accept that the best way forward with this and the person with the most capital invested in is Boris Johnson. For all his failings, he has shown that he's prepared to, 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 to take this difficult decision. Let's trust in their dealings with her will indicate that she's very much speaking from the same page. Whoever else comes in, we don't know. You know, there could be any, any number of potential leadership uh, individuals. But what I would say to you is because Boris Johnson has successfully fought off his first leadership contest, mm. He's got a year's grace. Uh, you know, there cannot be another leadership contest for another year. That being the case, I think this will resolve itself one way or the other within the next 12 months. In, in what way? Because uh, there's obviously no honour in, or integrity uh, in uh, the British government at this stage. Well, I, I, I'm not so much worried about that. I'm worried about the economic and political future of Northern Ireland. And I think it's best served by resolute action through Westminster to undo the damage caused by the protocol. This is definitely a step in the right direction, but remember, it has to get through the House of Commons and the Lords, and we have no idea what's going to come out at the other end. So I think unionists should keep their powder dry to see what the legislation actually states when Her Majesty signs it, maybe in 15 months' time. Okay, we leave there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us, as always, on the programme today. Political commentator Jim Wells, a former D UP MLA. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as you've probably been hearing, uh, the ESRIs uh, growing up in Ireland's COVID-19 survey has shown a deterioration in uh, the mental health of young people. Four in ten 22-year-olds say, or are classified more to the point as being uh, depressed. That 40% compares to 55% of women of the same age group. And uh, if you go back two years in time, you're seeing significant increases. 22% of men going to 40%, 31% of women going to uh, as much as 55%. Let's uh, speak to Michael McLaughlin of Youth Work Ireland and a very good morning to you Michael and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose it's indicative, is it not, of how tough the pandemic and the lockdowns have been for all of us. 
Yeah, it wasn't, you know, huge. I mean, the figures are dramatic, but I mean, of course, we, we were seeing this. I mean, whether you, you know, classify it as, you know, full depression or anxiety or various different things on the continuum of mental health, but mental health is a huge issue uh, during the pandemic. And I think um, we need to be careful about assuming that, you know, we just all exit and everything goes back to normal and everything's kind of happy, happy. I think you know, the damage does seem to be, you know, the scars do seem to be longer term for, for certain people and uh, young people, you know, good cohort of young people. So that's, I think, the lesson we're taking from it that we need to be, you know, over the next couple of years, we need to, to, to be watching this to be honest. Okay, uh, I'm losing you a little bit there, Michael. I'm not sure if you can speak more directly into the mouthpiece, but if that's possible, it, it would be great. Uh, it's a terrible thing to see so many young people down in the dumps, for want of a better way of putting it, because it really is a great time in life to be 22 years of age, to be leaving childhood or those teenage years and looking into your adult life and all that lies before you. Um, what should be done, do you think? Well, yeah, we did speak about that before, that these are the key moments, the transitions, as you say, uh, going out, meeting people, doing well in your education, getting started in employment. I think there's a continuum, again, of responses. There is more serious element. We've seen a lot of issues around CAMS and the kind of the more official kind of uh, clinical response to issues of mental health. And that is important. And there's a lot of shortages there. And for some reason, we can't even get it right. That has to be looked after. I think we're more in the community-based sector where it just kind of, Informally, a couple of hours a week. I think in that area, uh, there is support. It can be rolled out. We do a few programs there. I think they can always be, you know, receive more support for that kind of thing where youth workers understand how you spend an hour or two with somebody and how you can really help them uh, see their way through these things. I think it's in a very quick way. It uh, you know, could be in a community hall, okay. doing table tennis, that you can draw these things out and talk about them. So I think there's a whole range of sports. And of course, schools and other people are in the mix too. Okay, we're finding it difficult to hear you, Michael. Uh, you're on a mobile, obviously, in an area where the coverage uh, is uh, not helping the conversation. Uh, but uh, you were saying that there should be more supports. Uh, but if I understand you correctly, you're saying this goes back to before people get to the age of 22 because the CAM service is uh, for children and adolescents. Uh, and is it intervention, but earlier intervention uh, that uh, would help in that sense before you get to the uh, idea of young people socialising? Well, I think it's how we support people throughout the, the, the life cycle and those transitions that they make, but certainly, yes, we probably do see people at a much younger age, but the transition from school was increasingly happening around 18, 19. There's those who leave school early, so the whole diversity of people out there uh, even making a transition to second-level education has been difficult for many people. So I think we have to have multiple approaches. And I think, again, I think youth services and people who work with young people have that. We deal with multiple ages. We deal with more disadvantaged people. We deal with more mainstream people, too. And they can have issues, too. And health cuts across many of those divides. So uh, I think, you know, a multi-pronged approach, for sure. Uh, the state services in, in, on one side, knowing what they have to do. The volunteering community sector very much uh, on the grassroots and in the community level. I think all of them need, need to up their game and everyone needs to be uh, focused on this. Not, I think, as I said earlier, I'm not uh, saying that everything's fine now, that we've just emerged and everyone goes back to normal. We've certainly seen uh, court people and they haven't really come back. We don't see as much. They're probably still a bit indoors. It could be people who've got you know, more minor issues as well, anxiety and maybe on, on, the, on one side of the spectrum and that really needs a lot of attention. 
Okay. Michael, the line uh, is uh, too bad really to continue, I'm uh, afraid to say. Uh, We'll have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and uh, apologies for that and apologies uh, to you listening at home about uh, the quality of uh, that line. Michael McLaughlin, Youth Work Ireland there. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to the issues surrounding Our Ladies Hospital in Navan and how in just over a month from now, it's expected that the emergency department will close and with that, the ICU beds will close. And that meeting that was held in Navan about this last night by Sinn Féin. Here's the Sinn Féin president, Mary Lou MacDonald, and some of what she had to say to the 200 people or so who attended that meeting. So what we need now, to put it just very directly, is a bit of cop on. A bit of cop on from Minister Donnelly in particular. I think it's important that he hears the voices in this room. And we can't achieve the radical improvements badly needed in our health service by taking a knife to emergency services in Navan Hospital. That's actually a false argument. The idea that this course of action would somehow improve care, either in Navan or at another location, is simply not true. And the clinicians in Drogheda bear witness to that because they tell us already that they struggle to cope. What hope if if services in Navan are to cease? The example of Limerick should be really taken on board. David set it out there. Ennis closed, Nina closed, St John's closed. And when people objected to that, just as you object to the stripping of services at Navan Hospital, they were told not to worry, that they were imagining things, that in fact this situation would improve. Well, my friends, it has not improved. And consistently, University Hospital Limerick consistently is at the top of the heap in terms of wait times, trolley counts, and so on. So it is not acceptable for the HSE or for the minister to take a decision like this in such a confused and such a cavalier fashion, not to listen to your voices and perhaps above all else, not to exercise basic common sense. What's needed in Navan, what's needed across the system is more capacity, not less. What's needed in Navan and across the system is more accessible care, not less of it. So I think the message from this evening's meeting to the Minister is quite simple, that this needs to stop now. I think he needs to appreciate the depth of feeling here in Navan and accept that the people here simply will not stand for the course of action that he proposes. Right, that's Mary Lou MacDonald, uh, the Sinn Féin president, speaking in Navan last night. Uh, and if you are in Navan or the surrounding areas or if you've ever used Our Lady's Hospital or feel that you might need to use Our Lady's Hospital at some time in the future, maybe you let us know if Mary Lou MacDonald is right when she speaks about you, saying that you won't accept it uh, because we have seen a, a lot of people and I'm sure there's a, a lot of people who won't accept it. We saw 10,000 people, in fact, uh, the last time uh, a protest took place about the hospital. So that's 10,000 people. But of course, uh, I'm sure not everybody agrees with the scenario, but 
I think a lot of people do. Maybe you'd let us know what you think about it. Martin is in trim and he phoned to tell us what he thinks. And he says, we have a senior minister in Meath. We have two junior ministers in Meath. We have two senators who are based in Meath. And if they can't stop this downgrading, then we have no chance. It seems that if they do put extra capacity in the Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, it is going to happen no matter what anyone thinks. Thank you indeed, uh, Martin. And I, I think it's down to whose decision is it, which is uh, the question I, I put, I don't know how many times, to Patrick Tobin earlier in the programme. Patrick Tobin did say, in fairness, uh, he was answering the question, he was saying it's a political decision. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure that that is uh, the case, uh, or if the HSE has uh, the authority to unilaterally make this decision, to use an old Brexit phrase, uh, or if uh, the uh, government uh, can decide uh, to put an end to their plans. There's no doubt about it uh, that the HSE has plans. There's no doubt about it that there's conflict between the HSE and the government because they're both speaking openly and vocally and saying uh, very different things to each other and how all of this pans out in time uh, we will find out. Uh, There are some opposing voices as you'd have heard Mark O'Driscoll's reports uh, this morning from last night's meeting in Navin and we'll hear from a a local GP now, Dr Niall Maguire. Unless we can make massive uh, across the board investments in Navin and turn it into a regional hospital which will not happen the emergency department cannot be sustained in a safe way because it isn't just about bringing in um, or bringing back acute appendix operations which seems to be in most people's minds it's actually about providing a whole slew of sub-specialty medical services as well and over the last uh, five or six years both Catherine one colleague in Nobber and myself and other GPs have been working inside the hospital in their management and transformation committees listening to the kind of work and problems the consultants there face. Uh, And what they're finding is that they're being expected to practice 21st century medicine um, in an antediluvian setting. They don't have access to the subspecialty, for example, kidney services or transplant services or surgical services that should be available and which patients deserve and will demand and will uh, seek to vindicate the right to have in the courts ultimately if their care isn't up to standard. And the Navin ED doctors, the doctors who are called to see patients, sick patients there, are telling us that they can't really do the job properly because they don't have all the suite of services and supports that a proper ED requires. Right, that's local GP Dr Niall Maguire. He was speaking to Marco O'Driscoll at the Sinn Féin meeting in Navan last night. Thanks to Des, who's in Dundalk, I think. Uh, Des uh, was in touch with us because I was telling that story that goes back oh, I don't know, was it 2008 or 9 or 10, uh, about the man who fell off uh, the roof and had to be taken to Drogheda. Uh, he fell off the roof of the Louth County Hospital in Dundalk and then had to be taken to Drogheda to be treated, uh, which at the time uh, didn't make sense to anybody. It probably would make more sense to people locally now because uh, the change took place a long, long time ago. But Des said, I remember the story wrong. He said that they did have to wait for an ambulance uh, to come from Drogheda to tent to the man who fell off uh, the roof at the Lourdes. But he he says uh, he was there at the time when uh, that actually happened and it was the ambulance from Dundalk 
that brought him to Drogheda. They didn't bring him to the Loud because the A&E was closed, but it, it was the Dundalk ambulance that brought him for treatment. Thanks, uh, Des, uh, for that clarification. Uh, the ironic thing, I suppose, in the context of the Navin Emergency Department discussion now is that the man was yards away from what used to be the emergency department or the A&D in the Louth County Hospital and had to be put into an ambulance and brought to Drogheda. Uh, it, it might sound like a bad thing if you're in Navan, uh, but not according to Dr Niall Maguire, as we heard a moment ago. Uh, and there's a, another GP who's been telling Marco O'Driscoll that it's not a bad thing either. This time we're going to hear from Dr Catherine Wan. Navan can cater for most of the patients, but... There are a, a minority of critically ill patients who will get a better outcome. And we as GPs believe that. And that's why we have to stand over what we've been told by the clinical experts. But we want a strong, uh, multifaceted uh, hospital in Navan that will serve the population. But times change and the way the deli- care is delivered has changed. Uh, and we've got to, got to acknowledge it and seek to put in new systems that... Uh, meet the gold standard of care that is needed. Doctor, you would have direct contact then, is it with those in the hospital? Yes, myself and Niall do. Um, They've been collaborating and asking our opinions. We welcome a 24-hour medical assessment unit. It is critical that patients can access a GP uh, who can assess and, and and advise whether that's the most appropriate place to go. That needs to be looked at and looked at urgently so that um, patients who can't get to see their GP on a given day need to see some, have somewhere to go to be a set, to, to get a prescription if it's an acute illness or to be further directed to the hospital, AMAU or wherever. Um, uh, you know, uh, but they, they, we need access to GPs or an alternative service to a GP in places like Navin or Meath where there's, there's not enough... Uh, 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 a doctor on call service kind of yeah a daytime doctor on call but then you know we have to look at how that's staffed I mean the premises are there Uh, uh, there's ways of being created about this and putting solutions in quickly right that's Dr Catherine Wan she was speaking to Mark O'Driscoll Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the government uh, met uh, with uh, many groups and bodies yesterday ahead of uh, the budget which will be held in October. Let's speak uh, to Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland, who attended the National Economic Dialogue. And a very good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. What's your sense of things uh, this morning? Uh, will there be anything done by the government before October to help people offset the cost of living? I suspect the government preference is by far and away not to do anything uh, between now and the budget day. The point that they'd be looking at, I suspect, uh, is that it might the picture would look um, or the, the, the actual set of initiatives that they are going to do in the budget would look better if uh, all the money that was available was actually available for a distribution on that day. My own view is that uh, the the bottom line is that the poorest have been left behind, that if you look at the last three years, um, the core welfare rates did not increase at all in the first two of those three years, and in this past year, they increased by five euro, but if they were just to keep pace with inflation uh, and keep their value through the year, uh, they'd have had to uh, increase by about 17 euro, um, and 
so therefore the ordinary people who are depending on welfare for their payments have seen a fall off in uh, of about 12 euro in the real value day to day of the actual money that they receive and that by the way more than 60% of what I'm talking about of the people that I'm talking about are on pensions mm. they're not uh, they're not uh, on sort of unemployment payments and stuff like that we're talking pensioners mostly uh, the majority are pensioners yeah. there's no uh, way of improving their income so exactly mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're mm-hmm. totally fixed income the only time they ever hear anything uh, the only time they know uh, that they're getting increases in the budget so they're waiting for the budget to find out is their income for the coming year what their income for the coming year is going to be whether it's going to be the, the value of it is going to fall and so on and the, the, I, I would basically say that no matter how things are and we we have two opt- two likely possible at least two possible scenarios looming up ahead of us one is that things get really bad and that we have inflation and recession and a whole lot of stuff goes wrong and in many ways a lot of that is outside our control because it'll be it'll be dictated by what happens in Ukraine and what happens in a whole lot of other scenarios boss and situations but there's also the possibility that we'll be able to skirt around it and not be really seriously hit either way it seems to me uh, government priority should be on the bottom 20% of people those who are poorest and th- that means in effect uh, that the incomes of those who are on core social welfare rates pensions and so on should increase by 20 euro a week in 2023 in the budget of 2023 that would make the difference it would actually bring the value up again to where it was uh, to be introduced from january is it or from october or from march well uh, for me no way in march Uh, but i mean it would certainly be a plus if it were introduced from budget day or the following week or the the start of the following month November, uh, but it, it should certainly be as soon as is possible. Uh, the bottom line is, it's a big, it's a big bill. Uh, it costs a lot of money. But then, when you look at uh, the other initiatives that government is taking, the, the, there's 87 billion euro in the budget, and that, and not alone that, that does not include tax breaks. So there's another uh, nine, ten number some in tax breaks that could be got as, as well. Okay, so mm-hmm. there's there's quite an amount of things that could be done to ensure that government has sufficient income uh, to meet these kinds of needs. And uh, and again, I think it's important for your listeners to know that when we're arguing this case, we're always pointing out that poverty is not just about income. Mm. Although it is always about income, as we have discussed here before, you can't solve it without dealing with the income issue. But you must also deal with housing. You must also deal with public transport. You must also deal with health care, education uh, and rural uh, situations, uh, isolation and so on. Okay. Broadband, those kinds of things. Most people are wondering, though, what's the problem? Uh, that's certainly the case if you go by a survey that's uh, been released uh, this morning from Aviva. Uh, and they say that during the pandemic, men saved on average 521 euro a month, women 342 uh, a month, an average of 397 a month. More than 50% of people saved more than 200 euro uh, a month. And they also say that people are planning on spending more, particularly young people uh, and those over the age of 55. And then side by side with that, you have to look at the rising cost of living. There's been a dramatic rise in the cost of living. Uh, You're getting a situation uh, where 
the, the, the costs of rent, for example. It's like um, somebody was telling me um, earlier today, actually, about in the place, that, in the area that they live, which is uh, a suburb of Dublin, not even city centre, uh, and 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 they they were looking for somewhere uh, to to rent uh, in this particular suburb. They looked up all the various things. There was a whole series of properties, but the cheapest rental in that area was 1500 a month. God, I was expecting you to say 2000 <laughs> uh, but, but like, yeah, but how, who can actually meet 1500 a month every mm. month if their income is on the bottom, like on the, on, in the lower half? Like, for example, mm. uh, half the people of Ireland, okay, mm. half the people of Ireland, 30, uh, their, their income is below... 38,000. Right, which is very interesting because if you're paying, what did you say, 1,800, was it, or 1,500? 1,800. 1,800. Well, you should spend no more than a a third of your income. You're spot on, Michael. That's exactly the point. So so you'd need to be earning 50,000, 60,000 euro. Exactly. So that's the point. And and as you say, it's much more likely that the bill is going to be uh, 2,500 a month, Mm -hmm. which brings you to 30,000. Then you're you're supposed to only pay, as you said, 30% of your your income on your housing. But I take it it's the people who are are, are, uh, earning 50,000, 60,000 who are paying 2,000 a month in rent and managing to save 500 euro a month. Yeah, but like again, tis the question is who who's to do that? Like you see, when you look at the breakdown in, in incomes in Ireland, like in people getting paid and people who have jobs, like uh, the the, t- the top quarter, that's six hundred thousand people are earning six figures. They're earning over one hundred and five thousand. Okay, now there, that's that's the group that's saving money uh, during COVID and various mm. other mm. things. Like, the, and, and, and they're in a position to able to rent, pay two and a half thousand, and so on, mm. and it all fits because even if they have a thirty thousand bill, it's thirty percent of their hundred thousand. Mm. But what about the other three quarters of the population? Okay, well, in, in fairness, this survey says over 50% have been saving 200 a month or so and you take it that maybe they haven't been spending it socialising and drinking drugs and whatever else and maybe if they cut back on the drink and the drugs they'd have that money to spare. But the, the bottom line in that is that that was in, this, in a kind of unique moment mm. um, in which we, all sorts of things were in place, including two COVID mm-hmm. payments and COVID supports for jobs and so on that are not in place now and won't be in place into the future. So we, we have a situation, I think, okay, people, some people may have been able to accumulate and save a certain effect. A lot of people may have mm. um, saved a bit more than they would normally do uh, during the COVID time. But in, in, in reality, once they... they that was actually being done in a situation where they weren't they were sort of almost not moving anywhere okay mm. now once they're even even getting back into the norm having to travel uh, to work for example instead of uh, working from home uh, having to sort of uh, now face up and sort of say okay we've got to get our uh, healthcare stuff in order or we have to actually just uh, pay the bills but the biggest thing that's hitting them is the cost of living has gone through the roof so you've got huge increases not just in in fuel mm. but in food so you've got an awful lot of people who are on low to middle incomes who are having to make choices about what, uh, whether, like, 
between fuel and food. There are certainly people, an awful lot of people at the poorer end, mm. in the bottom 20% who are in that space. Well, it's going to get worse. Uh, it, it definitely seems to be the case if the war goes on. And that seems uh, to be the view of the European Commission. And it would appear, according to the Irish Times today, that the Commission is putting in place contingency plans and emergency plans for a scenario should it arise where there are fuel shortages. And if they're planning for that, uh, well then uh, we're talking about uh, a real increase in prices if those shortages come about. That's absolutely the case. So, uh, And uh, you can add to that the fact that uh, there's uh, going to be food problems because Mm. of the Ukrainian harvest not being actually sold and because of the issues that have to go with uh, that that are happening uh, uh, to the Russian harvest as well. So we're going to have serious problems with fuel and with food and the costs of both, the availability of both, the need possibly uh, to to sort of uh, take a serious look Mm. at how they're actually distributed because there's the problem in this context is it's the poorer people of our world that are going to suffer more and more as this mm. continues. People who have nothing at all to do with with uh, the yeah. Russia-Ukraine issue or with, with those other kinds of issues that that have driven up the, the, the cost of living. Mm. But and, the bottom line for somebody it, it, in it's Ireland... The, like, it's the 20% of people listening to us, I, I think, Sean, who, who were listening to me earlier on saying people were, were saving €500 Euro a, a month. Uh, these There's an awful lot of people uh, who wish they had uh, 500 euro a, a, a week let alone being able to save it every month but sure if, if people had 500 500 yeah. euro a week like they, yeah. they wouldn't they, they they certainly wouldn't be in the poorest 20 percent yeah. although that's although just to point out 500 euro a week it, it doesn't get you too far in ireland today yeah. particularly when, if you're going to have to pay for your accommodation mm. but the, the bottom line in this is we're heading into a situation that could well be very challenging and that's the, the th- what the government was discussing yesterday, I suppose, with a mm. lot of people like ourselves. What I was basically advocating very strongly to government yesterday that they do no harm, to, to ensure that they do no harm to low-income households in Budget 23. The potential for doing harm is huge because they have done harm already in, their, in, in the lifetime of this government because they have not ensured that the value of core welfare rates are maintained. That means, in effect, that poor people, the poorest in our society, have seen the value of the poor, small payment that they get fall. And that means, in effect, that they can purchase less with that money. And they are not anywhere close uh, to, to, to sort of being able to, sp- uh, say, 500 euro or whatever. I mean, many of them, are, their, their basic payment is 208 euro a week. Now, like, with all due respect, you can't save 500 a week or, uh, or, or a month <laughs> either yeah. uh, if, you, if you're actually, uh, if that's Absolutely. your level of income. Yeah. So what I would be saying, absolutely, you have to deal with the income issue and you have to deal with the services issue. On the income side, you have to increase core social welfare rates by €20 Euro to, to bridge the gap in, in budget 2023. And you should also replace the minimum wage for people who are on low pay. Replace the minimum wage with the okay. living wage at 12.90, not what the town is to announce last mm, week or the like week 26 before. or something, yeah. 12, he was 12.17 an hour. It should be 12.19 an hour. That's what it is. Mm. That's what the living wage is. 
put it in place, then you're in business there and possibly make tax credits refundable as well for, to help the working okay. poor, the 100,000 people who actually have a job but are still living in poverty. Okay, and of course we have to get through the next three months before the budget itself in October. Sean, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning as always. Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now to a story of not just tragedy, but multiple tragedies in uh, the traveller community. The Irish Examiner reported yesterday on the suicide of a 12-year-old child. It also said that Pave Point says that there are unconfirmed reports of suicide by two other young traveller children under the age of 12 in the last seven days and that suicide accounts for 11% of deaths in the traveller community. Before we speak to Pave Point, I should just say to you that if you do feel like speaking to somebody, you should do exactly that and call the Samaritans. They can be reached on 1161 Two three. That's one one six one two three. Martin Collins is uh, the co-director of Pave Point Traveller and Roamer Centre and a traveller rights activist. And a very good morning to you, Martin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. As I say, we're talking about uh, a, a multiple uh, of tragedies, uh, 11% of deaths in your community. And you're asking what's happening with uh, the National Mental Health Strategy for Travellers that was committed to in uh, the Programme for Government. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Michael, can I, on my own behalf, and indeed on behalf of Pabby Point Travel and Roma Centre, I want to convey my deepest uh, condolences to uh, two bereaved uh, families in the last couple of weeks uh, that I can confirm a young traveller girl under 15 years of age in the Midlands uh, committed suicide and then a young traveller boy just 12 year old uh, just, sorry just 12 year old in Finglas uh, who also took his life so I want to send my deepest condolences uh, to the two bereaved families uh, Michael we are just absolutely uh, the community is rocked rocked right to the core you know we're in a state of dismay and disbelief that in the last nine days two young people both under 15 years of age uh, took their own lives. It's absolutely shocking. And yes, uh, we want a response. We want political leadership. We have been campaigning and advocating for many, many years for the development and indeed the implementation of a national travel mental health strategy. Now, that is a commitment, Michael, in the programme for government. Uh, but unfortunately, we've seen no movement on the development, the, the development or the drafting of that strategy. And again, we are calling here on our political leaders and indeed on the Taoiseach to step up to the plate, uh, show some political leadership, work in consultation and in partnership with travel organisations in drafting uh, this strategy that can respond to what is undoubtedly a pandemic in our community. As you say, uh, 11% of all deaths in our community uh, is by suicide and in fact the suicide rate in our community is seven times higher than the national average. If that doesn't constitute a crisis and an urgent response, I don't know what does, Michael. Why do you think uh, there is a mental health crisis in the traveller community? Well, I think it's multifaceted. I think it's very uh, complex. I think, you know, there can be, obviously, no, I'm not an expert in mental health, but a lay person's opinion, I think sometimes there can be a genetic predisposition to it. But I also think there are many other factors uh, which contribute to it. If you have a community, Michael, that's that's persecuted, and I, and I use that term mm. deliberately, you know, where there's institutional, systemic racism, 
you know, where you're denied uh, access and opportunities to education, to employment. You're forced to live in substandard living conditions without basic services such as running water, sanitation, electricity supply. Your cultural identity and integrity uh, is questioned and undermined. Uh, you're defined as a failed, settled people, as, as a failed, settled person who just need to be normalised and civilised by the state. That racist ideology, unfortunately, is still at play. So I think there's a multitude mm. of factors and what is termed the social determinants. So when you take all of that collectively combined uh, and you find yourself in that situation, it's obviously going to have an impact on your mental health well-being. Right. Uh, the solution uh, then perhaps is uh, to improve the living conditions for people, well, is it not? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we mm. are working with, 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 with the Department of Equality, with Minister Roderick O'Gorman's department at the moment, in developing a national travel roam inclusion strategy, mm. uh, because the present strategy uh, has come to an end. So we are working constructively with his department in drafting the next one. And hopefully it will address uh, some of these key challenges. For example, Michael, we have 8,000 individuals, about 1,300 travel families, who, as I say, are living in conditions which are akin to what you would see in a developing country. Mm. Now, don't forget, Ireland is the third richest country in the European Union. Money is not an issue. Local authorities have the funding. They are not spending the funding. That is very well established and documented. No, by they, don't, they don't want to spend the money. No, they don't. No, and then yeah. when you think 85% of travellers are unemployed, mm. uh, you know, less than 1% of travellers go to university. Yeah. We have more we have more travellers in Irish jails than we do in Irish universities, and I yeah. think that speaks mm. volumes. Yeah. So all of these issues combined do create fertile conditions that would have a very negative impact on their mental health well-being. The other point I would make, mm. and this is a really important point also, yeah. uh, you know, the overall, the, uh, in terms of our overall health budget, only 5% of our overall health budget is actually allocated to mental health services. Mm. That is grossly uh, um, uh, inadequate. And that's and that's for the general population, for, for, for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and that's, why, that's, that's why we see uh, yes. such mm. problems and that the mental health services are the Cinderella yes. of the health services yes. and you've problems p- particularly with CAMs that are, are, are very disturbing, but right uh, uh, across the board. Absolutely. And who the World Health Organization have, have advocated that, you know, it should be 12% of our overall health budget should mm. be allocated to mental health services, not 5%. So the, the overall uh, funding for the mental health services is grossly, grossly inadequate. And, and they did, uh, you know, the government need to up their game in this regard. Um, I, I can't imagine, and I honestly can't imagine living under some of uh, the circumstances uh, that you outlined. I can't imagine living as a, a traveller in this country. I can't uh, imagine, for example, not having a, a proper toilet or, or running water or some of uh, these things that you spoke to, uh, spoke about, Martin, or, or being looked down, uh, being treated as a, a third-class citizen and not... Uh, being considered for a, a job, not having the opportunity to be educated or any of these other things. Uh, and I can understand why you're saying all of that would be very, very depressing. Uh, and then that makes me wonder uh, about a traveller-specific mental health strategy uh, and what would that involve? I mean, would that give you the coping skills to live without a toilet or running water or to be looked down on by other people. Uh, And it goes back to that question I was putting to you a moment ago. Surely the the, the solution is to change those things. Uh, Absolutely. I I, I don't think it's it's, it's, uh, feasible 
to deal with one issue in isolation from the others. Uh, I think what's needed is a multifaceted uh, approach uh, in addressing these issues. So I think it's, it's, it's totally inadequate to be dealing with health, for example, in isolation from living conditions, or to be dealing with employment in isolation from education. So what travel groups have been calling for, Michael, is an overall integrated, multifaceted approach in dealing with all these issues because there are, there's an interdependence in all of these issues. Mm. So if you have got access to secure uh, uh, accommodation, obviously that, that has implications for how you participate and access education, which in turn then has implications for your employment prospects. So we can't deal with, with one issue in isolation from the other. And that's, and that's a really important point. And to be fair, there is an acknowledgement, I have to say, from government in that regard, that mm. what is needed is a multifaceted approach. Uh, and government can do what it likes and what it can uh, but it'll have no bearing on anybody's life on improving anybody's life unless people play their part and this comes down to the majority of people in the country the majority of people listening to us this morning because unless there's a change in mindset uh, you're not yeah. going to see an improvement. The, the bottom line is travellers need to be treated better. Uh, these conditions come down to a, a large part to the way the settled community looks on the traveller community. And it's not just uh, whether that comes to a, employment or, or treating you like a, a third-class citizen or whatever the case may be. It comes down to things like running water or, or toilets that work because the settled community don't want to live beside the traveller community, which is why the local councils aren't spending the money that has been allocated to them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's essentially it. I mean, I think that people need to acknowledge uh, and recognise that racism is and continues to be a big issue in Irish society, uh, not just in relation to travellers, but indeed in relation to other ethnic minorities. But in this instance, we're talking about travellers. So there has to be, in fact, there is, uh, to be fair to the government, there is an acknowledgement that racism is an issue and it needs to be addressed. And Minister for Equality, Roderick O'Gorman, last year set up an advisory committee to develop a national action plan against racism. And that national action plan against racism will be launched, I understand, in July. And we have fed into the development of that uh, strategy, not just Paddy Point, but indeed other tribal organisations. So, so there will be a strategy in place, hopefully will address this, both individual and systemic uh, uh, racism that exists in Irish society. And I suppose if you just, uh, you know, uh, I, I remember, uh, you know, that terrible tragedy, Michael and Carrie Bynes, you know, in October 2015, when we lost 10 members of our community in a, yeah. in a, in a, a dreadful fire. I mean, those people were forced to live on a site that didn't even meet basic health and safety standards. Yeah. And, uh, and then, we, you know, the bereaved families when they had nowhere to go, mm. you had, you know, I need to be careful here, it wasn't all. Some of the local residents in that area actually stood in front of a JCB where Dunleary, Ratdown County Council were endeavouring to provide an alternative site for those bereaved families. Yeah. And a number of people stood in front of that JCB. So within a matter of days, it went from roses and bouquets to boulders. And that's just an example, again, of, of racism. Okay, that's an example of life in Ireland. Uh, I just want to remind people uh, that if they do want to talk to somebody, the Samaritans are at the end of this number, 116123. That's 116123. Martin, thanks as always for talking to us. Always a pleasure. And thank you indeed, as I say, for joining us on the programme this morning. Martin Collins is uh, the co-director of Pave Point Traveller and Roamer Centre. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Paddy Smith of Trim Garda Station joins us for the report this week and uh, thank you indeed for doing that, Sergeant. We're going to begin in Beliver for our first report, which is of an assault. Uh, good morning, Michael, and to all your listeners. Yes, um, on the morning of the 12th of June, um, just after midnight, a male was walking alone on the Atby Road in Beliver, County Mead, when he was approached and assaulted by a number of young males. Uh, the injured party received a number of serious injuries and required hospital treatment. Um, we are especially looking for the local community assistance regarding this incident, and if you have any information, please contact my colleagues at Tringarda Station on 046 948 1540. Okay, we go to Kells next, uh, where there was a burglary last Wednesday, I think. Yeah, that's correct. On the 15th of June at 12.45 at a private residence in Mullahay, Kells, um, the occupant of the house actually disturbed a maid in the sitting room area of the house. Um, upon seeing the occupants, the suspect fled the scene. Um, the suspect is described as a male wearing a navy half zip top grey cap and jeans. Now, we've carried out house to house inquiries, and witnesses have described a small royal blue vehicle flee the scene. So, again, we're looking for anyone who may have been in the area at the time, not with anything suspicious activity or can help us in any way, to contact my colleagues at Kells Garda Station on 046 928 Okay, we go to Enfield next on Thursday evening, Thursday night. Uh, Somebody was very busy, weren't they, uh, in some housing estates breaking into a a number of vans? Yes, that's correct. On the 16th of June, uh, between half 11 and midnight, um, three park vans were broken into the housing estates of Blackwater, Newcastle Square and Enfield. Um, The fly windows in each respective van were smashed and a number of power tools were taken. Uh, witnesses on CCTV uh, depicted a silver vehicle, we believe possibly a 09 Saab model, involved in a number of suspects. Um, our colleagues in Dublin subsequently found a similar vehicle abandoned that night. So again, we're looking for anyone that may have been in the area at the time or noticed that suspiciously. Again, could you contact my colleagues in Trim on 046 Right, uh, next uh, to Navin and uh, a burglary that uh, occurred in uh, the small hours of uh, the morning in Ludlow Street last week. Yeah, that's correct. Approximately 2am on the 16th of June, uh, a male smashed the front window of a business premises on Ludlow Street in Navin and removed a sum of cash. Um, CCB was gathered and depicted that the suspect was a male. He was 5 foot 10. He was wearing a black jacket with a hood and camouflage shorts. So again, we're looking for anyone who may be in the area at the time uh, to please contact my colleagues in Navin on 046 907 9930. Alright, probably worth keeping security in mind for all of us, uh, whether it's 2 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They're out there and we go to Tankardstown next and a a house that was broken into in the middle of the afternoon. Yes, exactly, Michael. On the 17th of June at 2.20pm a burglary occurred at a private residence at Tankstown Rathout, where a sum of money and jewellery was taken. Now, entry was gained uh, via a small window in the roof of the dormer bungalow. Uh, the house was alarmed at the time, and the alarm was activated, and the suspect correctly left the scene. We currently have no description of the suspect, and we were seeking any information if you were in the area at the time, and it was then suspicious to contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01 801 
or the Garda Confidential Line on one eight hundred treble six treble one. Okay, we go to the Moneymore Housing Estate in Drogheda, a housing estate uh, that has uh, become somewhat infamous in terms of how it has made the news over criminality in recent years. It's uh, been a regular location that has uh, seen petrol bombs uh, being uh, the way that people have been attacked in the town. We're looking at a, an attack that happened in Moneymore once again, or at least that appears to be the case. Yes, on the 18th of June, um, approximately 4.15 in the morning at a private residence of Moneymore and Drada, the occupant of the house was awoken by the sound of windows being broken. Uh, the occupant actually went downstairs and discovered a fire in his sitting room which was extinguished. Um, Gardy has carried out technical examination of the scene and carried out house-to-house inquiries in the area. Uh, where we are looking for the public assistance regarding this matter and if you have any information in relation to this instance would you please contact my colleagues at Drawda Garda Station on 041-987-4200 Sergeant Paddy Smith of Trim Garda Station thank you very much indeed and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme before we go let me bring you some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us Mary in touch with us saying she fully agrees with a, a comment I made earlier on about uh, the hospital in Navan being used as a political football by the parties. The people of Navan cannot afford to allow this to happen. The hospital provides a vital service to the people of the area and we need to make a united stand to fight to retain services. We cannot make this about politics. It's a question of public services. Thanks uh, Mary for that. I hope I didn't say it was a, a political football. I asked if it was being politicised uh, because Peter Tobin hadn't attended the Sinn Féin meeting. And in touch saying we have three sitting government ministers in the county Surely they can appeal to their party colleagues to retain services in Navan and upgrade the hospital where possible. Drogheda cannot cope with any more people and people of the North East cannot afford to lose more of the A&D services. Thanks, Anne. That's the final word. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.